today again continually on the church where faith goes public. I want to kind of give you an outline. I'm going to go ahead and give you the headings and uh, then we'll work through them. And I know, uh, you know, just, to, just so you'll have kind of a guide that we're going to follow. In verse 37, the first part, we're going to see deep conviction. The second part of verse 37, we're going to see their open confession. And then verses 38 to 40, we'll just see Peter's simple directions. And then they'll have a joyful reception in verse 41. That's as far as we're going to make it this morning. And we're going to struggle to make it there. Amen. But we're going to strive to and be rather hopeful. Verse 42, you see a steady progression. Verse 43 to 45, you can call it hearty cooperation. And then verses 46 to 47, there just is great celebration. And so that's what we want to look at among the early church in the beginnings of the ingathering here among the people. We got to start with the sermon that was preached. Otherwise, we don't know what pierced their heart. So let's read Peter's sermon. And so I invite your attention back to verse 14 in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, we got to read his sermon to know what they were pierced to the heart about, and then we'll make our way. So as we begin the exposition this morning, let's look at verse 14. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. Now for somewhat of humor, I've always found this verse a little humorous. And that's to say, they ain't started drinking yet. It's still early in the morning, okay? So evidently, they knew for them to have a custom to get a little out of character later in the evening. And Peter says, hold up. You can't blame this on them. It's still early in the morning, okay? i let you know where my mind goes. So I've, as I've told you before, pray for your preacher. But that's just, you know, that's what I see there. Peter says, look, they're not drunk. This is something that's going on in the Spirit of God is being poured out. So look at verse 16. But this, in other words, what they're seeing, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs of the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what Peter just did is he interpreted Joel chapter two uh, to them. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32 to be exact. Peter just gave them a New Testament interpretation of what Joel spoke of back in his prophet, prophetic word. What they were seeing unfold is what Job said was going to happen. So we got a little problem with Hagee's book on the blood moons if Peter said it was what happened in the day of Pentecost. I'm, be, I'm meddling. But anyway, let's keep going. Verse 22, what does Peter continue to say? Men of Israel, listen. Listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God and with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, here's another interpretation. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he died and was buried and his tomb is still with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on its throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. There's your interpretation for the section that Peter quoted from the Old Testament regarding David. Then he says in verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now, those of you who's been with us on our journey through the book of John, you know that Jesus, you remember Jesus promised these men in the upper room, what? I'm going to send him. I'm going to send him. Well, this is what Peter said it is. Look at verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So if it wasn't David who ascended, and even though David said that, then who was it? Jesus. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him what? Both Lord and Christ. So God has made him Lord in Christ. Well, when was Jesus given the name Lord? Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, the Carmen Christi. Uh, uh, more than likely a hymn that the early church would have sang that Jesus, follow his humility church, Paul said, who humbled himself, who re in, took, uh, counted it not robbery, a uh, uh, equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, uh, Philippians 2 verse 9, for this reason, God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is what? Lord. So because of his coming and because of his living, because of his dying, because of his resurrecting, and now at the ascension, he's been called what? Lord. I'm not waiting on Jesus to be king. I'm not waiting on him to start ruling. I'm not waiting on him to start reigning. He is currently Lord. Now... I got to get out of Peter's sermon or I'll be in Peter's sermon. 
But at the end of Peter's sermon, what happens? The result of the sermon preached, verse 37. Now we begin. What did he say? Now when they heard this, what, did that, what is this? Everything we just read. When they heard that, what happened? They were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. Brothers and sisters, the first thing we want to see this morning is deep conviction. Deep conviction. The first part of verse 37. They were pierced to the heart. That word pierced. It, you know, it means to stab. It's an interesting term. It means to stab. To, to You know, that's just point blank what it means. Well, when they were pierced to the heart, what was happening? What took place? Well, there's a few things I want to say that happened in this moment when they were listening to the sermon. The Bible tells us really that their eyes were open to the fact that they had killed the very one God promised to send them. That's what they were open to. Their eyes were open to the very fact that they had killed the Messiah. The very promised one of God. The one they had longed for. The one that was going to bring this great jubilation to the people of God. They put Him on a cross and killed Him. Their eyes were also open not to, only to the fact that they had killed the Messiah, but they were the ones guilty of doing it. They did it. Hands of godless men. The weight of that sin had fell on them after the sermon preached by Peter that they had indeed been guilty of killing the Son of God. Not only were their eyes open to those two things, but I'll even add another one. Their eyes were open to the fact that they were now in fear because the very one they killed is also the one who currently is living. So if the one they killed has now come back to life, would you be scared? I would say so. The Bible says here, Peter quoted it here in Psalm 110 on verse 34 there. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemies your footstool for your feet. Well, who's his enemies in this moment? The ones who have hung him on a cross and killed him. Can you imagine how pierced their heart was? When the Spirit of God was working to open their senses to what they truly had done? They had killed the promised one of God. They had put him on a cross. They had killed him. So now what else should they expect from him? Brothers and sisters, judgment, the sense of wrath had fell on them through the preaching of the word of God. Peter had made it very known to them at the forefront of his message that everything that Joel spoke about and everything that David spoke about has been seen by their very eyes taking place on this day of which we call Pentecost. You know, but as we think about this piercing that took place, when we think of piercing, that almost gives the connotation of a negative term, doesn't it? Piercing, that don't sound good. We know a piercing certainly wouldn't feel good. But do you realize today that a piercing in the heart after the preaching of the Word of God is God's grace to you and me? It is a grace of God that the Word of God does a work in the hearts of God's people. This is, a, this is grace. How do we know it's grace? Because John 6, says, No one can come to the Father except the Father which sent me. Do what? Draw Him. And the very work of the Word, giving evidence of the guilt we feel of our sin, is in response to the grace of God that's been poured out on us through the preaching of the Word. This is God's work. 
And so the first thing we see is deep conviction. Notice secondly, the rest of verse 37, we see open confession. They were pierced to the heart. Now let me just make a comment before I go to this open confession. This is kind of a little bit of comical relief, but uh, you know, you hear people say, well, preacher, you stepped on my toes. And in my mind, I, I understand what people say. I get it. But in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I missed because I was tr- shooting for the heart. Okay. So anyway, you know, let me, all right, we're moving on. So open confession, it pierced them to the what? Heart. They didn't come out that day and say, Peter, you caught my pinky toe. No, they said, Peter, you got my heart, man. It, it, you got in there. It hit me hard today. But we know that that was not the work of Peter. We know that it's not the work of any preacher. It's the grace of God through the Word of God and the work of the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us now that we see open confession. Not only did we see that they had deep conviction, but open confession. Notice the rest of verse 37. It says, And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? I don't want us to miss the fact that the New Testament writers continually follow the track of the Old Testament prophets. So in other words, when Peter's preaching, when Luke is writing, everything they're doing is to indicate the fulfillment thereof of what has already been spoken. And what do we know had already been spoken? Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they've pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. What is taking place on the day of Pentecost is what was prophetically uttered through the prophet Zechariah. God pours out a spirit of grace to open the eyes of dead sinners to see that the one in whom they've pierced is the very one of whom was promised. And it cut them to the core. That was Zechariah 12, 10. But guess what Zechariah 13, verse 1 says? On that day, a fount will be opened from the house of David and the re- to the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Your eyes are open to see the fountain that flows from Emmanuel's veins. For those who plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilt and stain. That's the glory of the gospel. And that's what we see unfolding. I even thought back to Isaiah 53. You remember the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that he grew up before him like a young plant, like a a root out of dry ground. And he didn't have any impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow who was acquainted with grief. And, and, and we thought he was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But it was because of our griefs he bore. He bore our sorrow. He carried our grief. And by his stripes we were what? Healed. Isaiah 53 is a confession of what's being told here. This is what they are confessing. We didn't realize we killed him. Our eyes were blind with hatred. Our hearts were filled with, uh, with bitterness. And we killed him. And the evidence that their word has been preached and the spirit is moving is because mouths are confessing. You remember 
Well, you don't remember yet because we ain't got to John 16, but maybe one day. Uh, but John 16, 8 says when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness and judgment. So is the spirit doing what Jesus said he would do when he comes? He is. They felt exposed. They felt like Adam and Eve in the garden. They felt naked. They tried to hide themselves. They were guilty before God. They were laid bare. There was nowhere for them to hide. The very sermon that Peter preached opened the heart to their guilt of what they had just done. This is a testament of the Word of God. Hebrews 4 verse 12. The Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any, two, any double-edged sword. Penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And what Peter did was open the Word and it laid bare the hearts of his audience. And they opened their mouths in confession that we are guilty. What shall we do? Now, you may sit here this morning and think, you know what? That's pretty bad of them people to put that man on a cross. But brothers and sisters, let me be swift to remind all of us that it was all our sin that put him on that cross. You cannot look at this story and say, poor, poor, pitiful Jewish man that was sitting there that day that's collared crucify him. Yes, they did that. But the reason Jesus went to the cross that day is not just just because they hated him, but because also he was paying a penalty due for you and me. You say, where is such in the Bible? I'm so, so glad you had. You know our theme verse here, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, somebody got he, right? Amen. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on what? Our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You and, my, you and me, our sin put the only begotten of God upon the cross. So let us not sit in our comfortable pews today and cast an eye down our nose toward the people that is confessing sin today. You and I and our own sin put him there as well. We're guilty. But the work of the word through the regenerating power of the spirit brings one to confession. I have sinned. A lot of us have that older brother syndrome. And when you say older brother syndrome, you think, what are you talking about? There was a tale of two sons that Jesus spoke of. One squandered his inheritance, gave it all away and thought, I am crazy. I'm going home. And his daddy received him with forgiveness. The other one was out back doing what daddy had told him to do the whole time and got mad because mom and daddy forgave the one that was acting crazy and had never given him anything for always doing what he was supposed to be doing. The ugly truth of it is the one who was doing what he was supposed to be doing wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing out of love. He was doing it out of hope that he would get the honor over any of the other ones. And the heart was exposed. And the end of that story kind of ends abruptly. And John MacArthur preached through that tale of two sons. And, you know, I'd never thought about it. And we don't, he just gave a hint, and which was spectacular hint in my opinion. But 
at the end of that story, that parable, you kind of have the older son just sitting there looking at the father and he's cursed his father because his father's given this crazy wild son a, a steak dinner. They killed the fatted calf. They put a fine shirt on him. They took him to Walmart, got him a ring and all kind of stuff. And, and this guy's sitting there thinking, man, I've been listening and doing right the whole time. Why are you treating him that way? And MacArthur implied that the end of that story was to show that the Jewish people had been the ones who thought they were doing the right the whole time. And the younger brother being the Gentile brother that comes home living wild and licentiousnessly out in the world. That's a $3 word. And so when they came home, what did the older brother end up doing? Put him on a cross. He killed his father. That's something to think about, isn't it? But here in this audience that day, they asked the question, what shall we do? Well, that rings a bell to me because I was thinking of Paul. Paul was giving his testimony in Acts 22 and he says, when the Lord appeared to him, he said, Lord, what shall I do? And then I thought about the Philippian jailer came to Paul after the jail had fell down by an earthquake and all of them was let go from their shackles that were hanging on them. And what did the Philippian jailer say? He said, sirs, what must I do? Well, here they are in an audience of crowd and they're asking Peter and the apostles, sir, what must we do? I love that question because the reality is this, a, a convicted sinner never knows of himself what to do because it's not in man of what he is to do. This is the work of God. And they desperately want to know, is there anything we can do about this? We're guilty of killing Jesus. What can we do? Or are we just doomed to suffer the wrath of God? We come to our third heading, simple directions. Simple directions, verses 38 to, 39, to 40. Simple directions. Boy, aren't you glad there's an answer to that question? What shall we do? That's your question. That was my question. What shall we do with guilty blood on our hands? What do we do about this? Is, it, is there any way out of it? Or are we just eagerly anticipating the judgment day, knowing that judgment's coming? How can I escape what I know to be coming my way and I deserve it? How? Well, here's Peter's answer to the crowd. Peter said to them in verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now, my goal has been to make it to verse 38. I want to spend a little time here. Uh, often this verse can be the center point of somewhat heated conversations. And um, I'm not going to emphasize maybe the, the, the negative of that, but I want to point out the just the reality of what Paul, uh, what Paul, what Peter said here. Let's think first of all to repent. Okay, to repent. Peter said to them, "Repent, repent." Well, the word "repent," as we know, if you look that up, uh, "maneo" just simply means to change one's mind, to change one's mind. So think about the setting. Peter is standing there among these. He's preached the sermon. 
He's told them what they've done. They're guilty of killing Jesus, the Son of God. And he says, repent. So what is that declaration? Repent. In other words, you could say it this way. Change your mind about Jesus. That's really the call that Peter has issued on this audience. Change your mind about the one you just killed. In other words, he wasn't the one you should have killed. He's the one you should look to to be saved from. Repent. Turn. Change your mind about him. The one in whom they had rejected. Now, brothers and sisters, we also got to uh, do some work here because work is required in verse 38. And it's not work to try to explain a way to uh, get to what we say we believe as, as Baptists in general. But I want to begin by thinking about the word repent. You know, if you just, if you say, okay, Peter said repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. What do we know to be also true throughout the New Testament and even the Bible regarding the word repent? You know, we know that the word repent is also used really along the same lines as having faith. So we cannot think that repentance replaces faith. Um, And I want you to understand that repentance and faith is really two sides of one coin. It's not that one gives, uh, that one comes, it's not that repentance comes before faith. You know, in my logical question, why would you be repenting of something you had not yet believed? (laughs) So logically, I don't think it fits. In my argument, I'm arguing that that faith, as quick as we know the ordo salutis to unfold, and that just simply is the order of salvation. When we think of all the things that God does in the work of salvation, we know that man is justified how? Thank you. Faith, I was supposed to say, all right, we're working on seven years, we're going to start over. (laughs) But if we haven't learned anything, we've learned that That man is justified before God, how? By faith alone. I mean, don't be scared to say that. The Bible's clear. By grace through faith in Christ alone, we are saved, right? So when we say, when Peter says repent, I don't want this to throw you off. I don't want it to throw you a curveball. Because most of these apostles in the New Testament use this language almost as though meaning the same thing when they say it. And I'll give you a few examples. Acts chapter 10 verse 43 says, All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Well, why, why didn't Peter tell Cornelius everyone who repents of their sin receives forgiveness of sin? Acts 13. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified. Well, why didn't they use the word repent? Peter used word. You see, you see what I'm saying? You can, you can get people who want to argue that way, but the word repentance and the word faith are two sides of the same reality. Those who have faith in Christ are clearly those who have changed their attitude of Christ. Those who have faith in Christ are clearly those who are seeing Christ not long, no longer as the enemy, but now as their Savior. Does that make everybody good with that? I don't want that to be confusing because some want to make it a little harder than what it is. 
And, and I would even argue that re- repentance is the fruit of faith and what God has done in our life. And I take that from an illustration that was used to the prophet Jeremiah 31 verse 19. He said, after I turned back, then I repented. You know, so in other words, after I realized this and I trusted in it, then I repented. And, and I'm taking that as an argument from what the prophet Jeremiah requires, is speaking and explaining Throughout all the preaching that is done in the Bible, someone will say repent and others will say believe. And I just want you to know this morning, they're really calling you to the same thing. We're not elevating uh, repentance over faith. Repent just simply means to change your mind, to turn around and about face, make a change in your 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 the, looking to Christ. And that's what Paul was calling Paul, that's what Peter was calling on these people to do. Change your mind about the one you just killed. Turn away from that sin. I, I would even argue this too, brothers and sisters, that repentance is not a once in a lifetime act, but rather a continual characteristic of one who has come to know the Lord. So you can't say that just one act of repentance is what saves someone. Repentance in and of itself is a characteristic trait that flows from the heart of one who has been made new. That's just clear throughout the Bible. I want us to consider the setting. When Peter stands up and says, repent. Think about all those people that just heard him say that who were ingrained to the depths of their soul in the ceremonies and rituals and temple and law system. I mean, every, it is who they are. And he says, hey guys, repent. Change your mind on the way you look to that for salvation and look to the one you just killed for salvation. That's a big deal. They were to change their mind. Turn to Jesus, not your system. Boy, that's still a relevant message for us today. Turn to Jesus, not your system. In other words, to repent was to call them to reorient their entire view towards the one they had just put on a cross. And this is the work of God in their hearts. As you would see in Acts 3.26, 5.31 and 11.18. So that's on repentance. But notice as Peter continued, he said, repent. And what else? And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, here we are on baptism. And that's why I put the title of the sermon where faith goes public. Because when we think about the church, when we think about following Jesus, baptism is part of that. Now, I want to... Um, walk through this rather, uh, not necessarily slowly, but as precise as I can, because if you have enough conversations with your colleagues and peers, um, they will be those who use Acts 2.38 as a linchpin for everything else they believe in their whole entire religion structure. Acts 2.38, uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, you bunch of Baptists are wrong because when you were baptized, what did you say? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, again, I want to be 
uh, I want to be meek, I guess is the word here, walking through this. So when Peter says here, repent and be baptized, the word baptized is just implying to them the renouncing of their old life. And now they are openly confessing Jesus as their Lord. The system no longer is my Lord. Caesar's not my Lord. Rome is not my Lord. But Jesus is my Lord. Think about it now. You're in a crowd of Jewish people and those who just called for Jesus to be killed a few weeks ago. And now Peter's telling them to get baptized, to identify themselves publicly the one with the one who they put on a cross. <laughs> That's a big call, is it not? Identify yourself with Jesus publicly. And as be true for them... So it is for missionaries that see this all across the world. We don't live this way much. I would even argue that probably none of us have experienced this. But for a lot of these people in foreign countries, when they go in for baptism, once they go down in the water and come up out of the water, they no longer have a family to return to at home. Because they've just publicly identified themselves with Jesus Christ. And so mom and daddy disowns them. Their family puts them away. You know, I was thinking about us. I was thinking about when I was baptized. I didn't have nobody waiting to put me out. I had everybody cheering me on. We don't understand the, the call to unify ourselves publicly with Jesus, like many would who are on foreign soil. Like, like, like even these Jewish people who just clearly cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And now Peter says, identify with him, identify with him. Do what? Mom may not let me come home for supper. This is the call for the Christian. Baptism for these people in this crowd that day was a marking of a public break from Judaism to Jesus. And for a lot of people in these tribal areas that missionaries are supported who are doing the work and laboring for them to be baptized is a public break with them from Muslim to Christian. Or from Hinduism to Christianity. And, and for their culture, that means you are now an orphan of your family. You have been kicked out. But we remember the words of our Lord with tenderness. In Matthew 10, everyone who confesses me before man, I will confess him before my father. And everyone who denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father. Brothers and sisters, you sit here this morning. Let me ask you the question. Have you trusted Jesus? And if you have, why have you not followed him in baptism? Why have you not followed him in baptism? The call is to believe in Christ and make it public. Go public with your faith. Put your faith on display for all to see 
that I am identifying with Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and he is my Savior. Peter called on them to identify with this publicly. And that's part of joining the local church is that you are identifying with Jesus publicly as you uh, go in the waters of baptism. So I wonder, and um, I've seen a testimony of folks that have sit in church and just never got it in order. Waited a long time and never got their baptism in order. And that may be you. You may be here and say, you know what? I do believe in Jesus. I am a Christian. I, I have put my faith and trust in him. And I would, I would call you to now think, I need to go public with this. Christianity is not a call to live a private life in the background, away from the world, knowing who you truly are at heart. It is, a, it is a call for us to go public, proclaiming publicly that my Lord and Savior is the one who hung upon a tree and became a curse for me. His name is Jesus Christ. And I am identifying with him publicly before all these people that he is my Lord. Now, What else does Peter say here in verse 38? Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Now, again, I'm going to argue that if you've read John and you get to the book of Acts, you know that that phrase in the name is very important. (laughs) Uh, You can highlight it all through the book of John. And then when you get in Acts, you highlight it all through the book of Acts. And really what, what this is, is a declaration of the authority by which they're doing this. And Peter is not proclaiming that being baptized in Jesus' name is what forgives your sin. That's not what he's proclaiming. And I know that Acts 2.38 is a linchpin, so to speak. It is, the, it is the ground upon which every other theological mindset flows for some. But if you do that, then you're really going beyond what you know to be true about studying the Bible. And that's this. I cannot you, I cannot base my entire theological uh, understanding of God on one verse if my understanding of that one verse contradicts everything else in the Bible. I can't do it. That would be a logical fallacy. That, that would be... Let me put it in our language. That just wouldn't be smart. So how are we to understand this? Be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of your sin. I do not believe that what Peter is implying is there's a particular formula, the formula of which you're to be baptized. Jesus has already instructed them to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in in Matthew 28. And what he's proclaiming here is just what Jesus told them to tell the world that you have come in whose name? Jesus' name, this new authority. They are to be baptized under the authority of Christ. Under the authority of Christ. That's how they were to be baptized. The same way you and I pray. The same way you and I worship. 
The same way you and I live. The same way you and I give. We, get, we do these things under the authority of who? Jesus. Because He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now let's work this out and talk about it kind of like an apologetic. For the forgiveness of sins. So does this teach baptismal regeneration? Now you may say, what in the world is baptismal regeneration? So let me explain. Does this teach that being baptized is what saves me and washes away my sin? Answer, no. Now let's work that out other than just simply saying, no. How, do we go, how are you going to back up your answer, no? We need to know those things. So let's consider what Luke is doing. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. Number one, Luke is not trying to imply that there's a work that is to be done in order to have your sins forgiven. I would also say that we must keep in, in mind the context because this is a dramatic step for these hearing this message. The call for them basically to put the water where their mouth is. <laughs> I don't know any other way to say it. That's really what Peter's saying. You're confessing Jesus. Now put your water where your mouth is. Do it publicly. Being baptized into him. Or as a sign of being baptized into him. Now if you're going to argue to me. That baptism is what forgives your sin. We got some issues. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17. Christ did not send me to baptize. But to preach the gospel. So let me ask the question, if you are on the other side arguing to me that baptism is what saves you from your sin, then if baptism is what saves you from your sin, why did the one who ordered them to baptize not send Paul to baptize, but rather to preach the gospel? That would be a logical fallacy because if the one who is to forgive sin didn't send you to baptize, which you think forgives sin, we got a problem. Everybody okay? Okay. Through the rest of the book of Acts, forgiveness is not associated with being dumped in water. We got a problem. If baptism is supposed to forgive me and wash away my sin. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 8, the Bible says that they were some of them who had been baptized, but were not truly Christian. Uh-oh. So the water didn't make them Christian? Evidently not. Well, also it tells us in Acts chapter 8, that they were some who were true Christians, but had not yet no nowhere mentioned they had been baptized. Well, then somebody, someone has got in their mitt, they're getting the greatest curveball to toss they've ever done. You know where they're going? Because they know where I'm going. Guess where I'm going? The thief of the cross. Right? Thief on the cross. He didn't have a chance to get baptized. But Jesus, what did he tell him? Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Oh, preacher, you Baptist. That was before... Jesus died. So what are we going to do? Fourth and 35. We're on our one yard line. And we're getting ready to punt Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? 
Secret things belong to the Lord. I don't know. Okay. The thief on the cross, as we read our Bibles, the two thieves on the cross did not die until what? After Jesus died. So number one, you just got that wrong. Number two, Jesus said, what was it that inaugurated the new covenant? His blood or water. His blood. The reason that the thief on the cross got into heaven that day, as Alistair Begg would say, because the man on the middle cross said he could come, but it was because the blood had been shed for him. So you got a little problem with that one too. Well, what about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Right? Cornelius is converted. Peter shows up. They're Christians because they've already received the Holy Spirit. And then guess what happened after that? Then they followed the Lord in what? Baptism. You remember the eunuch and Philip on the road? Acts chapter 8. What did the eunuch say? Hey man, why can't I get baptized? But it's supposed to wash away sin, right? Why didn't they just stop and throw everybody out in the water? It's kind of like those who say they're apostles today with healing power. Why have you not shut hospice agencies down and also St. Jude? So if baptism saves you, why are we not out trying to stop running around with our truck beds filled up with water just trying to dunk whoever will come and let me? Because it's not about that. The, the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, why can't I be baptized? Well, if it forgives sin, shouldn't Philip said, well, let's stop and get it done. But he didn't. What did Philip tell the eunuch? He said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Then you may. He said, I believe. Then he ordered the chariot to stop because they saw a bunch of water. Evidently, they wouldn't sprinkle and hint, hint. And so anyway, they got out, went down into the water and had a baptism. Amen. Praise the Lord. Is there a baptism that takes place that does wash away your sin, though? Let me ask it that way. And that still may be a little tricky. We know water baptism does not wash away our sin. But who is it that baptizes us spiritually that does wash away our sin? The Spirit of God. Titus chapter 3 and all of Romans chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, baptism is a sign publicly of what you and I confess has happened inwardly. It does not save, but it declares publicly that I have trusted in Jesus. Well, I see where we are on time and we're nowhere near where I thought we'd get that's okay. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and really and truly you say, you know, I've heard about Jesus. I really have believed in Jesus. But I've never thought about making my belief public. 
Why not let today be the day that you say, you know, I'm no longer ashamed. I know I'm shy. I know I'm scared to death, but I have put my trust in Jesus and I'm going on public notification. I stand with Christ. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you say, you know, I'm still kind of in that crowd. I've never trusted in the one who I put on the cross because of my sin. And I would say, believe. Believe in Christ. Trust Him. Trust Him and be saved. If you're a Christian today, let me conclude it this way. I don't want to downplay baptism. And get, just give me two more minutes. I think I can do it. I don't want to downplay baptism and just act as though baptism is really nothing. Baptism is an important time in the believer's life. And I say that to say this, a lot like we look at communion and attending church. Baptism, church attendance, fellowship, communion, all these things are ways that God has given for us to have grace. And I guess a way would say it would be a means of grace. Isn't it so kind of our Lord to give us something to remember? Because He knows that we are so quick to forget. There may be some of you in here struggling this morning. You've been beat up with doubt. You've been beat up with anxiety. You almost want to live on, live on pins and needles. Can I ask you this morning, remember your baptism? Or can I encourage you? Remember your baptism. Baptism... Again, it's something that was done to you. It's not something that you done. Someone put you down in the water and someone brought you right back up. And it's to bring to our mind that there was one greater than you and I who put us down and brought us back up. Just as we come to this table, why do you think the word remembers written on it? As Spurgeon said, God knew we would forget. These are things that strengthen our faith, encourage our faith. Remember, let's pray.